0: a sermon series going through the book of Acts right now where we are seeing the power of God's spirit and the explosive growth of God's church through ordinary Christians who had almost none of the resources that we do today. Yet, the Christian World Encyclopedia estimates that by 100 AD, just 70 years after Jesus went back to heaven there were one million christians scattered across the roman empire so maybe you're thinking wow that kind of explosive growth must mean that the government they had favor with the existing government and this message of resurrection from the dead and salvation and jesus alone that culture was ready and receptive to that they liked that No. In fact, this explosive growth took place in the face of waves of persecution and opposition that the early Christians faced. Last week we dug into Acts chapter 5 where I showed you some of the opposition that it even included legal injunctions against them to try to stop the spread of this message. But now today you're going to see how the opposition goes to a whole new level. Because you're going to see the first Christian... To give his life for the cause of Christ. And he did it joyfully. Go to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 beginning in verse 7. Acts chapter 6 verse 7. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now for the sake of time, I'm gonna have to hit pause here. I wish I could read it all, but I'm gonna hit pause and we're gonna skip this amazing sermon that Stephen now preaches where he basically gives them an overview of the history of Israel and all that God has been doing to try to rescue them. He talks about Abraham. He talks about Jacob. He talks about Joseph. He talks about Moses. And then he pulls it all together by saying, you have always rejected everyone God has sent to you and you've done it again. Because you keep getting lost in religion and all that you're trying to do for God to justify yourself instead of humbling yourself and receiving by faith what God has chosen to do for you. But now I want us to pick it up in verse 51 where you're gonna see one of the boldest conclusions to any sermon you'll ever hear. You think I'm bold and offensive sometimes? Stevens, watch this. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Talking about Jesus of whom you, you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. He's like, yes, your claim to fame is we are the people of God and he gave us the law. Wonderful, but you've never kept it. You've never kept it. You've never kept it because you can't. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. So what can we learn from these verses that might help us today? Here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, the word of God has always been spread through the people of God. Look at chapter 6, verse 7 again. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were even obedient to the faith. And Stephen full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he, say it, spoke. Spoke. Now I want you to notice how verse eight begins because I think those two words at the beginning of verse eight are very important. You see that conjunction and, and Stephen, and Stephen signaled to us That we need to connect some dots between God's word and the growth of God's church. The spread of it. What's the dots we need to connect? It's this. God uses his people to spread his word because it has no mouth of its own. And no legs that can spread it through a city. But God's people do. We keep hoping God will have another way. Just rescue this broken world, but let me just take care of my kids, work my job, plant some flowers, have an upgrade on the house, then retire at the beach. God's word has always spread through God's people, 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 people. You say, I feel so inadequate. I feel so weak. I'm still so broken myself. I'm still such a sinner. Yes, 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 yes. And those are the only kind of people God's ever used. Through his people, through his people. So something amazing was happening. The word of God was spreading. Disciples were multiplying. But verse 8 tells us something important. And Stephen, people. God was using people to do this. And God still wants to use us. I know we got some amazing technology today. But folks, the world will not be reached with amazing technology. It will be reached one person at a time who speaks to another person, who loves another person, who sacrifices for another person, who has the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ about them that smells like Jesus. While you work in the hospital, while you work in construction, while you teach in a public school, while you teach in a Christian school, while you homeschool at home and take a walk around the block with your kids, while you go to the grocery store, while you go to the gym, God's word spreads through God's, say it, people. And we have what they had. Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is how God's been doing it. And so get this, this account of Stephen's death is not some random story that's just been thrown in here. Luke did not just think, oh, it's time to throw in a martyr story. That's always inspirational to everybody. This story of Stephen's life and death is connected to the overall theme of the book of Acts that we've already been seeing, which is what? God's spirit and God's word are unstoppable through God's people despite persecution even death. And so we've got Stephen's life and death. It's actually a very short one, but you're going to see later in this message I'm going to show you how what looks like a setback this this account of Stephen's death is actually pivotal in the book of Acts because it is a turning point and a launching pad Towards fulfilling what Jesus actually predicted was going to happen. Remember what he predicted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? And you shall be witnesses to me. Notice, if you look at at the verb tenses in the original language, it's not a command. Sometimes we read it that way. Be my witnesses. He's not telling us to go do it. He's saying, you will. You will. It's not in the command tense. It's indicative. And you will be witnesses to me. In Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So, even though Stephen had a very short career, he had an amazing grasp of God's word and how to communicate it clearly. And so, this is a turning point. God raises up one courageous, young, new believer. Stephen. He was young. He had a short ministry, he preached one sermon, but he had a grasp of God's word and how to communicate it clearly. And God uses this to launch the people of God towards fulfilling what he called them and told them to do. Basically what Stephen does is he does an Old Testament survey 101 in front of some of the leading religious leaders of his day who knew their scriptures. Woo. And then he sticks the landing with one of the boldest conclusions and says, God doesn't dwell in buildings that we would make for him with our hands And oh, yes, you keep talking about the law. Great. God gave us the law and he gave it through Israel, but you've never been able to keep it. No human being can keep it. That's why he sent a perfect savior, but you killed him just like you've killed every other prophet God ever sends you. Talk about bold preaching. You see, Stephen was not on his way to being the first seeker-sensitive mega church pastor with his hair swept back. He was on his way to being the first martyr. That's what that kind of preaching will get you. Martyr. In fact, he had zero converts that day. You realize? Not a very good preacher. Zero converts that day. But later in the message, I want to show you the seed that was planted that God used to launch the gospel around the world. And Stephen had no idea That seed was being planted on the day he cried out to the Lord and died. Here's the second thing I want you to see, though. God's word has always been spread through God's people. And we can get excited about that because we say, oh, God's word is powerful. It's sharper than two-edged sword. It changes lives. It rocks people's world. But here's what you need to realize. All of that is true. But point number two, the people of God do not always get to see the power of God at work through his word that's hard for us. That is really, really hard because we're so results-oriented. We don't want to do things that we don't think made a difference. I don't see results. I don't see fruit. Must not work. Must not work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Usually the problem is it's just too much about us. I want to feel like I'm a success. I need to see visible evidence of fruit. Get this. Yes, he has called us to proclaim His word, But bearing fruit is His job. Our job is to proclaim it. His job is to bear fruit through it. If you get those two things confused, you will start to lose heart and perhaps even stop sharing God's word. Because you'll start saying, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't. He's called us to be faithful. He's called us to share it. And He will put in His sickle and harvest souls when and where He chooses. Our job is faithfulness. His word is powerful. His word is truth. And his spirit is on the move. And your reward, get this, your reward is not notches on your belt. How many people have you led to Christ? How many people dropped to their knees and prayed the prayer? Let me encourage you. After being a pastor for 32 years, I can count on my hand how many people on the plane, unbuckled and dropped to their knees and prayed the prayer right there after I shared the gospel. I can count on my hand how many people at the gym. Later I learned and I got to know how God used it. On my hand. But my reward will be for faithfulness in proclaiming it. And your reward will be faithfulness in proclaiming it. That's why I love John Piper's statement. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in us and around us. And sometimes he allows us to see three of them. Every now and then you get to know. A couple of weeks ago, I got one of those special moments. You get a few of them in life, but you can't count on them. You can't need them to keep doing. I got an email from a woman that said, she actually sent it to the front office because she didn't have my email. And she said, hey, pass this on to Pastor Brad. I just wanted him to know. Eight years ago at the airport in Atlanta, he plopped down next to me and he saw me reading some little booklet with lilies on it. And he said, oh, I just taught about that from Matthew 6. And he shared with me, about Jesus, about the Bible, about the gospel. And then he mailed, I didn't remember doing this. Then he mailed me some messages and some stuff and it's changed my life. And I wanted him to know that. We love that. But folks, I have three stories like that. And I'm a pastor. We can't count on that. The people of God do not always get to see the power of God's word at work. But it's at work and it is powerful. Our job is to proclaim it. His job is to bear fruit through it. You see, what this chapter is actually filled with is what we more often see. It is filled with some of the negative responses that we still get today as we try to share God's word. Look at this first one. Even if you win a debate, you still might lose the crowd. You realize that? Even if you win a debate, you still might lose the crowd. That's what happened to Stephen in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. That word in the Greek for resist means they could not stand up against it. They crumbled. Stephen wins. He crushed them with his sound, biblical, logical, winsome, clear argument. They couldn't stand up to it. And so you would think, and so they repented. They said, thank you, you're right, we're wrong. Thank you for correcting the error of our ways. We see it now like never before. Now, look at verse 12. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. It's hard for us to grasp, but you can win an argument and still lose the crowd, folks, because here's what's going on. The crowd already has a disposition against the message. People are not neutral. They're born not wanting to hear this, not wanting to believe this, that there is a holy, righteous God who created them in his image to whom they will be accountable and that there is no hope for them apart from humbling themselves and crying out for his mercy people want to justify themselves people want to work their way into something people want to prove how good they are and so this message is a message they do not want to hear so don't beat yourself up you know don't walk away saying was I not clear enough was I not winsome enough what No, please know there's a place for greater clarity I hope God's helping me be clear and learn to ask some better questions please know there's a place for being winsome We must be winsome. Notice, Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. I see the face of some Christians when they're captured on street corners or whatever, and and they look furious and angry, and they're railing against. More often than not today, I see it on the internet. I see words being exchanged, and I want to say, oh my goodness, Christian, please stop it. We are not to respond in kind. Be winsome. Be clear. But at the end of the day, it's the message they hate. No matter how clear you are or winsome. Your clarity and your winsomeness will never overcome that they hate the message. But you don't know what God might do a week later, a month later, or three years later with that same message. You may not see visible results in the moment. But you have no idea what God might do in the future with that, Let me show you something else that was happening to Stephen that's still going on today. Number two, when they cannot refute the truth of God's word, they'll sometimes twist the words of God's people. That's what they're doing in verse 13, 14. Where it says, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs for which Moses delivered to us. What's going on? The same thing that so often goes on. They are twisting the words of Jesus and the words of Stephen. Stephen to say something that they did not intend to communicate. Jesus never and Stephen never intended to communicate destruction of the law. It is fulfillment, fulfillment. All this that they were a part of was always a shadow pointing to the reality, a shadow pointing to the reality. Stephen is saying the life, if you read his sermon, the perfect life Death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father did not destroy the law. It fulfilled the law. This is everything the law was pointing to, and it fulfilled all of God's righteous demands and has rendered obsolete the need for any earthly building with a human priest because now Jesus is our great high priest who's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us day and night so that we can have direct access into the presence of a holy God. They should be rejoicing, but they don't want to let go of all they've known and this framework of religion that they have. So did Stephen's sermon just fall flat on them? Did it have no power and no conviction? Does he need to go back through homiletics 101 and learn how to preach better? Here's what you need to realize, folks. Conviction does not always lead to repentance. Sometimes it does, but don't make a mistake. You can see somebody being convicted. Do not assume, oh, they're trusting in Christ now. That is a step towards repentance and conversion. But the human heart can stay right there and wrestle and respond in horrific ways other than repentance. Even, even when they're convicted by God's word, they will sometimes just lash out at God's people. It's God's word that's convicting them, but they'll attack the messenger. I'm nothing but the messenger. But God's word is convicting them, and instead of repenting, they'll attack people it's not what we'd hope for it's not what we pray for but it's what happens sometimes look at chapter 7 verse 54 and 57 again when they heard these things they were cut to the heart oh good conviction in fact that's that word we had a few weeks ago diaspora that means to be sawn in half i don't mean they were poked and pricked they were laid bare it cut them in half Oh, but what did they do next? They did not repent. It says, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and rushed at him in one accord. Oh, my goodness. Not the response you would hope for. You see, here's what's going on, people. These people are no longer thinking. They are emoting. And they have been driven into a frenzy over this message that Stephen has given them because this message he just delivered has dismantled their world view entirely and blown up all that they were holding on to and trusting in to justify themselves. And listen to me, as he explains this, that is both terrifying to them and something else I can't remember now infuriating, sorry, I practiced all weekend, terrifying to them and infuriating to them. That's why we see that sometimes. We see the fury, but folks, it's often driven by fear. Fear, this is what I know. This is what I've been trusting. This is what I'm comfortable with. I know how to work this system. You are scaring me. I am terrified and I am infuriated by the way you are dismantling this message that I've been trusting in and bringing a new one. See, the Holy Spirit has cut them and this message has stung them. Oh, it's doing its work. In fact, the Greek word in verse 54 there, where it says, they, the English translator said, they gnashed his teeth at them. It's actually a Greek word that gets used in other Greek letter, literature to indicate someone who has been bitten and wounded by a snake. Doesn't that look how, so they are recoiling. It's like this message bit them, folks. The Holy Spirit cut them in half and the message stung them or bit them. But instead of repenting, they've recoiled from it and they're lashing out at it just like you would a snake. And in verse 57, that word, that's why some of your translations say rushed at him. That word in verse 57 there is the same word that is used in Mark 5 to describe the herd of demon-possessed pigs that rushed off the cliff to their death in the ocean. That's what this crowd is like now in hearing this message. They've been bit, stung, and they've been driven mad by the sound of this because it is dismantling their worldview and everything they've been trusting in. But oh, listen to me, There, there's still some really encouraging news in this passage. God is still doing something in the midst of all the opposition. He was then and he still is now. you can see some of it in this chapter. Let me show you what I'm talking about. What looks like failure and loss to us is often what God uses to launch a revival for him. Oh, listen, the death of Stephen is a pivotal turning point in the book of Acts because Stephen's death led to an explosion of life. But that's not what you saw at first. You say, Brad, where's the explosion of life? It looks like things just got harder. That's right. In the weeks and months immediately following his death, things just got harder, way harder for Christians. Because his death launched a new wave of brutal persecution that was taken to a new level. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution, the word great, there's mega, mega persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Jump down to verse 3, where it only gets worse. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Oh, my goodness. Stephen's sermon triggered a whole new wave of persecution on a new level so so think with me for a minute i'm speculating but this is human nature i imagine there were some well-meaning believers who huddled up together and talked bad about stephen right and said oh my goodness what was he thinking what was he thinking that sermon was so uncalled for There are less inflammatory ways to defend the truth of the gospel than looking at the Sanhedrin and calling them stiff-necked, uncircumcised people who always resist the Holy Spirit. It's hotheads like Stephen that make it hard on all of us. The whole city is against us now. Families are being broken up. Men and women are going to prison. Why wasn't he more diplomatic and politically correct? God bless him. But he's made it worse for us. Isn't that how we think sometimes? Well, hit pause for a minute. That may be what some believers were thinking. We don't have to guess what God was thinking. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he records this in incident, says that Stephen was full of grace, full of power, and filled with the Holy Spirit as he preached his one and only sermon and stuck the landing with the exact words that he did that so enraged the Sanhedrin. Chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Do you see what's happening? Here's how I'd put it to you. Chapter 8, verse 1, with persecution, is now accomplishing chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Folks, up to chapter 6, they haven't made it out of Jerusalem. Yay! Yay! Jerusalem is filled with this message. The word is spreading in Jerusalem. There are more disciples in Jerusalem. Even some of the priests have become obedient to the faith in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Listen to me. God is going to do through us what God has called us to do. But he often does it in ways we would not choose. And here's what you got to realize. I know as Americans especially, we struggle to come to grips with this. Revival often takes place in the context of persecution, not apart from it. Don't hear me saying I wake up praying for more persecution. I do not. But, folks, if you look at history at all and you read your Bible at all, some of the greatest moments of revival have happened in the context of persecution, not apart from it, not in times of ease. I think America is where she is today regarding the Christian community because we've had it so good. We've become so soft. We've become so distracted by the things of this world because we have so much to distract us. And often it's persecution that awakens the people of God to the call of God. In fact, we know this is a turning point, folks, because later in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it actually mentions the persecution of Stephen again. It says, remember that persecution that arose? That's what scattered believers all the way up to Antioch and Phoenicia and Cyprus. God is going to do through us what he's called us to do. But he often chooses to do it in ways we would never choose. Even in our life with growth and being effective, I, I, I've prayed. I, I prayed as a young man, a young pastor. I knew I knew I needed to be more compassionate, more merciful, better shepherd. I love to preach, teach, but it's people. There's people. I'm praying, God, make me a better pastor. God, make me more compassionate. God, I just thought he would do that on the patio one morning, just I just feel, com- let me give you a hug. I just feel, no, how did he do it? He gave me two older children who broke my heart as they went away from the Lord, despite all I'd taught them. He gave me an ear condition that lasted 10 years where I thought I was going to lose my mind. And now I have a wife. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you what this looks like, who now has a new condition that is very, limiting in what she can do. And, and today's the anniversary of that. Two years ago, July 2017, Vicky diagnosed with transverse myelitis. It's changed what is normal for us. But folks, he's with us. And all of this, if Vicky were here, she'd say the same thing, has made us more like Jesus. Not less effective, more. We think I would be most effective if I was on top of my game, all pistons, No weakness, no illness, nothing distracting me, nothing is a hindrance. It's in weakness that his strength is perfected. And it's in persecution often that revival takes place. I don't know where we're headed in America, but we do not need to fear. Because wherever we're headed, God is with with us. He's with us. He's with us. He's with us. Never mind make America great again. How about revival? And if you're praying for revival, then you need to know the answer to those prayers just might be more persecution against the church, more limitations as to what we can do, more injunctions and threats against us, more being displaced from, from positions at work and being overlooked, more mockery, more, more, more of all the things we would never want but it may reap a harvest of more souls coming to Christ when they say why do you have that joy why do you still hold to your faith why would you live this way why don't you deny him how do you do that what do you have that i don't have let me show you something else you might not have picked up on that is so encouraging in this in this passage there's another name that gets mentioned three times in the verses I read to you. Did you pick up on it? Saul. Look at verse 58 in chapter seven. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul heard that sermon. And, and, and he didn't defend Stephen. You don't have to wonder what he thought about Stephen being killed He was holding the coats of those that did it. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. In fact, not only did Saul approve of his death and hold the coats of those who were killing him, it seems to have so inspired Paul that he went on a rampage of his own going into houses now and pulling out men and women and dragging them off to prison So who is this Saul that listened to Stephen's one sermon that had no converts that day? Well, here's where you see the grace and power of God on display that is able to save to the uttermost. Oh my goodness, this Saul became the apostle Paul, who went on three missionary journeys around the world, wrote 12 books of the New Testament and planted churches in cities all across Asia and on into Europe and then stood before some of the highest authorities in his day to defend the same message for which Stephen died and then to give his own life for the same. So even though Stephen had no converts that day, his sermon planted a seed in Saul that God's Spirit used to transform him. Into the apostle Paul who wrote books like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians that extol the glories of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing that God has been using for centuries to change men and women from every culture all over the world. But one young, courageous new believer preached one sermon that looked like Was a dud But it was not Let me say this to you Don't ever judge the success Of what God has called you to do By the immediate fruit That you can see When you do it Don't do that Don't do that And here's something else I want you to get from this We have a tendency, because this world is so broken, it's so dark, it's so hard, it is easy for us to imagine a a friend or someone who's close to us turning on us and becoming an enemy and hurting us because that's the way our world is. But from this passage, you need to remember that a deadly persecutor and enemy can become a promoter of the gospel because that's... Who our God is. And that's how powerful his word is and his spirit is and his grace is and his mercy is. God loves to take those that are unlikely, in fact, the most unlikely candidates. I don't know who you have in your life right now. But please don't be guilty of pushing anyone into a category of There's no hope for them. They are such an enemy of the cross. Richard Dawkins, God could save that man. I know he wrote The God Delusion. God could save Richard. That is not hard for God to do, folks. Whoever your worst enemy is, that one, that nemesis that makes your life so miserable at work, you have no idea. And you may never get to know. It may be somewhere else in a different state, at a different job, when the wife gets breast cancer, that something you said and the way you lived, even though they mocked you and made your life miserable, God used you to bring them to faith in Christ. And it may only be that day we stand before him. Because I think he knows we would just get puffed up. I think he doesn't allow us to know the extent to which he's actually using us because we're such glory robbers. We tend to think, yeah, I did that. And so he just doesn't let us see much. But don't get discouraged. God is using you. God is using you. God is using you. It's what he's always done, and it's what he always will do until Christ Returns The word of God is spread through the people of God And the people of God need to obey God And not base it on visible fruit on the day you do it Take heart, take heart The greatest enemy can become a partner and promoter of the gospel Because of God's grace Grace, grace Now I know this is a heavy sobering message for the most part So I want to show you something God thought Stephen needed to see, and so do we. Final point number three. While the world might reject us, our Savior accepts us and stands ready to welcome us into his glory. Listen to me, this dark chapter has two glorious verses that, it, that make absolutely clear what Jesus thought of Stephen and was doing for him and is doing for us right now as we slog it out in this dark, broken world. Look at chapter seven, verse 55 again. But he being full of the spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen was so struck by what he saw that then in verse 56, he actually says it out loud and says, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Now, let me tell you why this is so special. We've got two references to Jesus standing at the right hand of God almost every other reference to where Jesus is now all through Hebrews and other is he's sitting to indicate the work of redemption is done why is he standing most commentaries agree Jesus thought Stephen needed to know that while the crowd stood against him he was standing for him and was ready to welcome him home he's for us he's for us Now, God may never peel back the heavens and in your worst moment at work or in the neighborhood or with your in-laws or whatever it is, let you see Jesus standing for you. But, folks, what we got that Stephen didn't have, we have a New Testament. That's why the Apostle Paul went on to write about this very concept that he's for us. He's for us. He's for us. And one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8, turn there and look at it. You may not be persecuted today. Your life may not be threatened, but you may be in circumstances today that you would never have chosen. And you may feel like people are against you to the point that you'd say, is God against me? Have I been abandoned? Am I alone in all this? Am I an orphan? Oh, that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter eight, beginning of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is, say it, say it again say it again who can be against us how do i know he's for me pastor brad we tend to look at circumstances job bonuses all the good stuff in life no 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 here's how we know he's for us he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not also with him freely give us all Things, that's not a name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it, church, you know, verse that next year I'll be driving a Lexus, please. He's saying, I'll give you everything you need in that horrible circumstance you're in. I'm with you. I'll give you what you need. If I would give you my son to solve your biggest problem, then by my spirit, I'm with you. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you need right now. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is risen. Who's even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels... Nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But now as I close, let me point out a danger. Whenever we have a passage like this, oh my goodness, listen. Stephen is not the hero in these chapters, nor anywhere else in the Bible. He's a good example. He's not the hero, folks. Stephen was simply following the example of his Savior, Jesus. Did you notice how many similarities there are between what Stephen did as he faced this horrible moment and what Jesus has done. Like Stephen, folks, Jesus was filled with the spirit and had a ministry of unrivaled wisdom and authority. They constantly said, he speaks with such authority. He has such authority, he speaks with such authority. Where did he get this wisdom and authority? Like Stephen, Jesus was falsely accused of blasphemy. Like Stephen, Jesus was given an unjust trial in the middle of the night, all the rules were broken. Like Stephen, Jesus was drugged outside the city and suffered a brutal execution. And like Stephen, Jesus, while those were killing him, actually prayed that God would forgive them. But that's where all the similarities end, my friends. Because unlike the death of Stephen or any other person, the death of Jesus was not just the death of a good man. It was not just an inspirational example. The death of Jesus purchased for us the full and final forgiveness of our sins to make us right with a holy God. When Stephen died, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. When Jesus died, he said, it, say it with me, is, say it, say it again. The purpose for which he had come, taken on flesh and stepped into this world to fully keep God's law, the only one, and then to willingly give his life in full, final sacrifice and payment. Bulls and goats and heifers and doves and grain and incense offerings could never truly cover. Jesus, with his death, paid the price in full for us to be right with God. If you're here and you're not a believer Oh, come to Christ Stop Stop Clinging to anything you think you can do To justify yourself Stop comparing yourself with other people Saying, yeah, but look at, look at, look at I'm Put your trust Not in what you think you are doing But what Jesus has Done For you That you could never do And believer, take heart. Take heart. Jesus died for us so that we might live for him. And he has raised us up for such a time as this. We are his people in the world now on purpose. It's not an accident. And this world may mock us, they may oppose us, and they may even kill us. But God's word and God's kingdom and God's people will live forever. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your promises. God, forgive us for so, so often longing to see, see, see results. And for measuring whether you're with us by circumstances now. God, help us to proclaim your word and let you be the Lord of the harvest. God, cause your word to be driven afresh into us that we would have the assurance that you are for us. For us and with us regardless of who might be against us. Oh God, use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.